Ready? That's all you. Let's light oh, this candle. Oh gosh. Okay. <laughs> hey everybody. I am Sean Dotty. I'm with the Dollar Bin. We will be recording this panel and all the panels. So if you want to check us out after the convention, I got flyers up here. Um, you can listen to those panels and also our podcast and, and um, all that kind of good stuff. I am here with Robin Diddy and Van Jensen. Uh, and we will be talking about collaboration and continuity today. Um, and I will have Rob and Van introduce themselves. Uh, okay, I'm Rob. I've been writing comics about seven years now, I guess. I started out working for Top Shelf Productions as an employee in their warehouse. Uh, submitted my first book to them, which was called The Surrogates. And then uh, that led to other things. Uh, I started out doing Exomino War for Valiant as far as monthly comics goes. From there, I started doing Demon Knights and then uh, Green Lantern. And now I actually, Van and I write The Flash together uh, for DC. And uh, <clears throat> I'm Van. And uh, I, I guess, broke into comics with a series called Pinocchio Vampire Slayer that uh, should be self-evident what, what that's about. It's taught at finer institutions across the country <laughs> here. Uh, and uh, so that was a series of books and then um, end up getting to know Rob and he passed those along to an editor at DC and when he started on Green Lantern, uh, got in the door doing Green Lantern Core. So now I'm doing Green Lantern Core and The Flash with him and a few other projects in the works. And he has a really good graphic novel called The Leg, which is on Kickstarter right now. It's almost fully funded, I believe. Yeah, it's yeah. up over 80% funding after oh, just awesome. like 11 or 12 days. It is the whole book's already done. So, yeah, yeah, it's a 180-page full-color graphic novel. Going to go to the printer within about a month. And uh, yeah, it's uh, The Adventures of the Disembodied Leg of Santa Ana through Mexico in the 1930s. I've seen previews of it. It's pretty amazing. You should definitely check it out on Kickstarter. I've read it. It's a very good book. All right. Let, well, let's just jump into things. Um, so, guys, how far into the future do you have to plan out the events in Flash and Green Lantern? Yeah, I think it depends on the uh, it depends on the story. You know, uh, like with Flash right now, when we came on to Flash with issue number thirty. We were pretty planned up through issue 35, so it's about actually seven issues because there's an uh, unnumbered issue that happens in the middle of those. So um, generally when I turn in a pitch for something, I'll try to give them like a real firm. This is what my first six-month story arc would be, a looser. This is what the first year will be, and then also some bullet ideas of, of uh, what I could do beyond that. But in my head, I'm pretty detailed, and I, I you know, I knew what what Exo Man of War was going to be for the first two years, really, before I started doing it uh, in, in pretty good detail. I think it just depends. Some people can be more stream of consciousness or whatever. It's just whatever style of uh, however you write, really. You know? Yeah, and some of it, too, it, it'll depend on, um, you know, especially like working for, for DC or for Valiant is different than doing your own comic books because your own comic books, like, you, you plot out however much you want to plot out because it's all up to you. Um, whereas when you're working for for a publishing company that, you know, on a, a work for hire gig, they might have an event planned down the road or I mean various things planned down the road that they're sort of 
Um, it's not to say you can't plan beyond them, but it, it just shapes the way that you you go about you know projecting how many how many issues a story is going to take or where the you know the high points are going to be. Okay. Um, so when you plan out the events, kind of the future storylines, who all do you work with? Who I guess do you choose to work with? Who do you have to work with? Like, are there certain editors? We have to work with each other. Yeah. Are you talking about, like, the more, like, line-wide, multi-book kind of situations? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's usually dictated by the company itself. You know, they'll sit down and say, uh, we want to do... Uh, for example, when I pitched for Green Lantern, they said that as part of my initial pitch, they wanted a, a crossover that was going to go for each of the books for one month. And so I knew going in, they gave me the parameters. This crossover is going to last five issues. It's going to be in one of each and end with an annual. So go ahead and do a story that does that. So they determined who the other books were going to be. I would imagine for something like Forever Evil, it's the same. You know, they come up, they come in with, you know, we want this storyline. It's going to be an event series. It's going to tie into these other books. And then you go to those other books and you find out how they're going to buy into the series and things like that. So it really just depends on the gig, you know? Yeah. So you guys have been to the various DC summits, right? Where kind of the heads get together, talk. I've been to one. You've been yeah. to one? Yeah. Have you? I've been to several of Valiant. One DC um, I've just been to a, a couple of DC meetings that are more, you know, Green Lantern specific. Okay. Can you can you describe those? Like kind of what they're like? I'm curious. <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is more sure. for me than, than maybe yeah, you guys. Yeah. Um, well, so for the, you know, we've had a couple of, of sessions um with the green lantern writers getting together and the editors and i mean it's like in one way it's it's just really cool and that you know it's the dc offices in manhattan and so it's like you're in a conference room with like cool dc stuff all over the place and you know you look out of the window and there's the the letterman building the letterman building like right with people queued up waiting to go in and watch dave um, so the, there is just like a cool factor to it, especially, you know, I'm more of a, you know, tell them about the library. You went in there and you held the, uh, Oh yeah. I didn't get to do that, but yeah. Did. So yeah. DC has a library where they have, I think he said the librarian said they had like 99.1% of every comic that DC has ever published. And that even includes like, there was some one-off special birthday comic that this dad commissioned for his son it's like one of the most valuable comics because there were only i think there were like 30 copies of it printed um but so i got a tour of it and they had i mean they're in like slabs so they're really well preserved but the guy's just like opens a drawer and hands me a copy of action comics number one and i was was just like i can't even hold this like take this back like i don't if it like spontaneously combusts while it's in my hands, like I'm on the hook for that. Like, it's like a, it's like a, like a. If I remember right, it's like a climate controlled like vaulted yeah, yeah. room. Yeah, you have to go. It's not like you can just of... eat your donut and grab these books and look at them, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um. But so any anyway, like so there's that component of it, which is just kind of a like a cool factor. Um. But then also, I mean, it's you're you're in a room and you're figuring stuff out, like you're doing work. It's kind of I mean, I've been in that environment managing projects, um, you know, when I was a, an editor um, for a magazine or, you know, it's it's very similar. Like you have you have things that you need to figure out and you just hash out ideas and I mean, just keep chipping away at it until you get to a good place. And there's like everyone has their own ideas, which 
for the most part, mixing's better. Sometimes, you know, there are disagreements that you've got to figure out. It never yeah. gets too heated. <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know, for me, like, I always walk in at the beginning of the summit, and I feel like, you know, there's no way we're going to come out of this with a story. It's going to be terrible. It's pretty much how it is about everything. Like, every month, I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do, you know. I'll never be able to come up with a story, and then you do. And then by the end of it, you end up coming up with something because you have all these minds there, and you just talk and throw stuff back and forth. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's like you're getting paid to sit in a room and talk about comics in Times Square, you know. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's a pretty cool job, you know. Um, so it's a lot of fun to go to those kinds of things. But there is a sense of, like, you're going to be here for 48 hours, and by the time you leave, you better have something, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so there's that pressure element of it too. Um, you know, this last one that Van and I did, we were in the room all day and then we went back to the hotel and sat in the bar and talked again until like two in the morning, you know, just mm -hmm. talking stuff out. So uh, it's a lot of fun, but it is, like Van said, it's work just like anything else, you know. Is there a story that you guys want to do or like a character that you want to use, but you can't because he's tied up somewhere else or she, oh, she's sure. tied up somewhere else? Yeah. Uh, even not even to that extent, but even with Green Lantern and Green Lantern Corps, Van and I are always coordinating with each other to make sure that if John is with character X on some planet somewhere, it doesn't show up in Green Lantern, you know, and just trying to keep all that uh, coordinated. But yeah, there's definitely um, things that will go on where, and that's why you submit like an overview several months ahead of when you would actually start scripting because then the, all the editors will take those overviews, share them with each other. And so the editors have an opportunity to say, no, you can't use Orion here because Orion's going to be used over there and, and all that yeah. kind of stuff. So you have to like, list out every yeah. character that's going to appear in the issue, which is partially for that purpose. So, that, okay. you know, they can say, yeah. oh, well, it doesn't make sense for, I mean, I guess maybe Marvel doesn't do that because Wolverine's in <laughs> 70 books in, more. Yeah. Yeah. Spider-Man can show up. So is it the main job, is, is it your responsibility to kind of keep up with the continuity or do the editors make sure that they go back and, and check with that? Or is yeah. it kind of both? I would say it's the editor's responsibility formally, but, but I try to do it myself as well. Cause I don't really, not that you don't want to, you don't trust anybody, but you don't want to leave something like that in somebody else's hands, you know? And there's always moments, you know, uh, XO Man of War number I think it was 12 or 13 the book was already at the printer and i caught a continuity gap and uh they had to pull the the page off the printer and re-letter it and then load it back up to the printer again oh, wow. because none of us caught it you know i didn't catch it the editor didn't catch it the assistant editor didn't catch it nobody caught it and, but thankfully you catch it at some point you know? yeah i it wasn't that dramatic but i'm not going to say which issue it was there was a green lantern core issue that and unlike the very last pass, I realized that there were two frames, three frames, where a character showed up and that character was dead. <laughs> and like, like recently was, killed, like yeah, killed like, had, like twenty pages ago. Yeah, not yeah. not like this dude yeah. was killed in you know Tales of the <laughs> yeah. Green Lantern Corps yeah. um, in nineteen eighty seven. Like he he had he was freshly dead. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, like Rob said, like. I think we we probably could skate and not worry about it, but that's just not the way either of us are wired. Right. We're way too okay. that guy's happy. Yeah, uh, we're we're just way too obsessive compulsive. I yeah, guess. and then really, when you notice those things, you're like, "Oh my god, what else didn't I notice?" You know, I don't know that we've really gotten hit with anything yet. You know, 
I mean, there's been some instances where people have thought we did something wrong, but they actually were the ones that were wrong. Yeah. yeah. The reader's always wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like the opposite of any kind of service industry. <laughs> so how much research did you guys do on Flash and Green Lantern to prepare? I For Green Lantern, the timetable for me starting was a little <laughs> compressed. Um, so, I mean, I had not read much of the recent stuff, but then I immediately went back and I've, I've since reread, I, there's a gap of like the, the period when Kyle was like the nineties when Kyle was the only Green Lantern, like pre rebirth that I haven't read all of, but otherwise I've read almost every Green Lantern comic that's ever been published. Wow. Um, Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. I've read about 300 issues, which to me seems like a lot, but I mean, the actual number is probably, I don't even know, don't know. Yeah, going back to the 60s. And most of it's not that useful, but it's, yeah. I mean, it's just like, you never know where ideas are going to come from. So like better to have read it than, than not. And there's been some good instances with like, we just have this storyline, the uprising storyline that's going on right now in Green Lantern. It was a, like a huge component of it was this idea that the Durlins, who were the shapeshifters, could could replicate Green Lanterns and take their place <laughs> and actually take their rings. And at one point, the editors, you know, as we were talking about this, the editors were like, no, that isn't impossible. Like, no one else can wear a Green Lantern's ring. And so I said, well, actually, in, you know, like volume three, number 47, or I, I don't remember exactly what number it is, but, you know, someone takes Kyle's ring and wears it through this specific mechanism, and that's the mechanism that we can use. And it's like, oh. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, before I started writing Green Lantern, or actually before they asked me to pitch for Green Lantern, I had never read an issue of Green Lantern in my life. I mean, I didn't start reading comics until my late 20s. So when they called me to ask for a pitch for it, I said, um, I know he's green, and apparently there's a lantern, but I'm not sure what it does. And uh, I think he's, like, allergic to yellow. And they were like, well, the yellow thing isn't true anymore. And I was like, all right, well, I know he's green and there's a lantern. <laughs> and they said, all right, well, that's great. You know, that's, that's what they wanted. They wanted somebody who was coming at it from the outside. So I read a little bit of it, you know, to familiarize myself with who Hal Jordan was and whatnot. And then I put together my pitch based on my understanding of the series to that point. And then once I actually got hired, I went and read, you know, hundreds of issues. Because I'm not going to do all that setup work for a job I don't know that I have yet, really, you know. Same thing with Exo Man of War. When they asked me to pitch for Exo Man of War, I read the first six issues, got a sense of who the character was, and then after they hired me, I went and read the entire 73 issue run um, to know the continuity and stuff. So uh, you kind of do it in stages. Did you guys feel a lot of pressure, like taking over for Dawn's or, or taking over Flash, especially with kind of like the big media push that they did with that? Yeah, I mean, definitely taking over for Jeff. There's definitely a lot of pressure there. Uh, you know, one of the most creatively and commercially successful writers of the last, you know, decade, or if not more. And, uh, you know, to me, I had a lot of people tell me not to do it, you know, for that reason. But to me, I don't know, that's, I'd rather be the guy saying that he tried it and it didn't work out than the guy wondering what if, you know. So to me, I'm always trying to try, challenge myself and do things and get outside my comfort zone. And, and this was definitely something I saw as a big challenge to try to put my own stamp on the series and and uh, continue what he had done, but also bring my own creativity to it, you know? So uh, I definitely felt the pressure, but in the end, you, you just kind of got to tell the stories 
that you want to tell the way you know how to tell them and, and hope that people like it. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of feel like no one is going to be as harsh on me as I am on myself. So I don't know. I like I push myself a lot to just do the best work I can and always be, you know, growing as a writer. And so that's like I, I beat myself up enough just dealing with that. But like the, the other stuff I'm able to tune out fairly well, I guess. Do you guys think about new readers when you're doing it and like writing for them and kind of catching them, them up with the stories and that kind of? Yeah, thing? absolutely. I mean, like I said, I didn't start reading comics till my late 20s. And so for me, walking into a comic book shop and seeing, you know, Superman number 9000 and Spider-Man number, you know, 8000 was like I, I had no idea, you know, it was very alienating. Like, I don't know what to pick up right now. And, so what I started reading was like Astro City or like Alan Moore's America's Best Comics line was out at that point. And I had no idea who Alan Moore was because I hadn't read comics, but Tom Strong number one was there. And so I picked it up and I read it and I was like, that's cool. This Alan Moore guy's not bad. What else has he written, you know? And so that's how I found Watchmen and things. So for to me, making something new reader friendly is a huge focus of what I do with every single issue. That's something they really focus on a lot of Valiant as well. As Warren Simons, the editor of Valiant, has really, uh, you know, helped me dial in on ways and methods that you can use to do that but every single issue of everything i write i would hope would be something that somebody could read pick up and read and know what was going on yeah i mean there's there's some stuff where it's just it's like you can't you can't tell an origin story every issue right so Mm -hmm. there's there's limits to it but yeah there's just there's there's you know tools that you have that and you just use them as best you can but it's always i mean there's so much of it is like deliver the necessary exposition and like advance the plot and do it all in ways yeah. that don't scream, Hey, I'm delivering a bunch of exposition here. So, I mean, you, it's just like anything else. You keep doing it and do it and slowly get better at it. Yeah. Van and I, when we first started talking about doing the flash together, it was this moment where it was like, we both, we both were asking each other what the other one wanted to do. And we both knew what we wanted to do and hoped that the other person wanted to do the same thing. And it was whether or not we were going to use interior monologue captions. Mm. And that was, he was like, do you want to use interior monologue captions? And I'm like, I don't know, man. What do you think? And we both did not want to do it because that's the challenge, right? Like, how do you – it's easy to orient the reader in one page of interior monologue captions. Yeah. I'm Barry Allen, and I can run super fast when I'm not working in a crime lab or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, the challenge is trying to convey all that information within the context of the story so it doesn't sound like the character's talking to you, the reader. You know, mm-hmm. that the, the reader's actually lost in the story and learning all these things organically. And so, yeah, it's, I mean, you pick a, like the vast majority of comics on the shelf, there's a ton of you know, first person narration through captions. And I mean, not to say that that's wrong or anything. It's just, I, I don't know why, like us as writers, it's like we want to challenge ourselves more, yeah. or so, make it harder for ourselves. Um, but I, I just, I don't, like to do it and and so yeah we were both relieved like okay like i it's gonna be tough but we'll figure it out makes it harder but hopefully the stories come out better because of it and there's you know i mean it could be to our detriment as well i mean there's definitely ways and times when you want to use an interior monologue caption and i think a good example of that would be swamp thing like the idea of swamp thing is that he's a sentient plant like there is nobody for him to talk to you know so it makes Mm -hmm. sense that you would have interior monologue captions because it helps reinforce the alienation that the character feels uh, being the only conscious plant in the world, you know? So, um, 
there's things like that where I think it works really well. But the original Exo Man of War series was just heavy, heavy, heavy internal monologue captions uh, every issue. And when I was reading it, I, I decided if they hire me for this, I'm never going to use an internal monologue caption. I'm never going to have Eric talk to the armor. Mm-hmm. It's just never going to happen. Okay. And I haven't done it still. Mm-hmm. So 25 issues in. When you guys work together, do you do the collaborating face-to-face? Do you use email? Do you Skype? What do you mainly do? I mean, everything except for Skype, really, mm-hmm. which, okay. like, we'll do joint interviews on Skype sometimes um, for, like, you know, podcasts or whatever. But that's pretty much only Skype we do. But, I mean, we um, we live about an hour apart, so... We've got a like midway point. There's a restaurant that we'll go to and plot out the future of Flash. And uh, you know, no one, no one there knows what we're doing. There's a couple of dudes like at a yeah, booth that squat at a table for longer than we're probably supposed to. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, yeah, we we meet in person usually, and we'll talk about the stories. Uh, it's great to be able to get out of the house and go do something. You know, you. You sit in your house, you write comments all day long. You know, I, I used to work in retail. You used to run a magazine. You're around people. You're talking to people. I guess I like that anymore. So we'll get together usually once a month, and we'll talk about the stories, and we'll divide it up into, you know, usually 10-page chunks, and then we'll go home and we'll each write our 10-page chunks, and then we'll swap, and we'll edit each other's 10-page chunks and give comments on them, and then send them back, and we'll revise those and then put it all into a 20-page document that we send in to the to – the, uh, our editor, Brian Cunningham, but, you know, Van and I have such similar sensibilities, uh, not just in terms of personality, you know, but also in terms of what we're trying to do with our stories and the kind of stories we like to read and the kind of stories we like to write. And so it's actually pretty seamless. And I think that, you know, like on Twitter, there'll be people that will say to him, Hey man, great line of dialogue there. And I'll be like, no, that was Rob. And they say to me, <laughs> Hey, that was really cool. That scene when Forrest did that. And I'll be like, no, that was Van, you know? So I think we've, we were able to, Yeah, I mean, we've even had instances that our editors didn't know who wrote what. Our editors have no clue because we don't point it out. They don't have any clue who wrote which pages, you know. Okay, Van, I have a specific question for you. Okay. Okay, working with Pinocchio Vampire Slayer and collaborating with Dusty Higgins, um, how did you guys pick a continuity for Pinocchio? There are kind of several out there. Um, yeah, so the series started, the first book came out in like 2009, and Dusty came up with the original idea, um, which was kind of cool to have an artist-originated um, story, which I don't I don't think is the way that it usually works. And it was just cool of him as an artist to come to me and ask to collaborate with me. Um, but so he did this sketch of Pinocchio lying in his nose, shooting out, stabbing a vampire, and asked me to write it. And I like I was kind of high-minded as a writer at that time, and I thought this is sort of stupid. <laughs> but then we we started to talk about it and um, went back to the original Pinocchio story, which is just it's a like really compelling, weird, super super weird, also really funny story. And so it was very obvious that um, because also because it was in the public domain and we use it that that was where we needed to to base the story but it also it was an aesthetic that that appealed to both of us so i mean mostly like the the big pinocchio you know the pinocchio that everyone knows is the disney movie and of course we didn't want to use any of that because we didn't want disney to sue us um but also 
the original Pinocchio is way, way, way better. So, I don't know. It was a pretty easy decision. Okay, okay Rob. Um, the Valiant universe is pretty crossover heavy, but at the same time, it's kind of self-contained. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you balance that when you're writing? Yeah, I mean, the big key of Valiant is every book has to be able to stand on its own. Um, you know, so even when you are crossing over with another title, again, you want to be near reader friendly. You want it to be isolated so that you can go read the other part of this story in another book and, and enhance what you're reading here. But it is necessary to read them both, you know. Um, so there's a very heavy focus on that. Um, and I think a, a, a part of it, too, is that I've been there literally since the beginning. So it's easier when you come in and the continuity is being built up around you and the same group of writers. And you know, like, okay, this is the kind of company that we're going to have. We're going to go on our own. Then we'll come together for a little bit. Then we'll go on our own. We'll come together for a little bit. And you know that going in. And so you're already from day one. Everybody's talk, thinking in those terms and looking for opportunities where here's what Exo Man of War could do. And that could be over here. And that could connect to you if you wanted to. And if you don't, it doesn't have to. And we all just kind of go back and forth with things like that and, and build it up around us. I think it's probably a lot harder to, uh, to do those kinds of things. Marvel or DC, where you have you know 50 years of continuity behind you, and then you got to try to get these pieces to come together, you know. So, uh, but yeah, we spent a lot of time um, talking about that kind of stuff. Okay, I've got one more question for you, and then we'll open it up to the audience. Um, do you guys want to talk about the new kind of Wally West, kind of how that came to be, or? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, DC came to us, and they said that they wanted to uh, introduce Wally West back into the series, and they gave us. <laughs> really two sort of uh, criteria. One, that he'd be biracial. Uh, so his, he comes from a, a Caucasian West family on his father's side, and his mother is African-American. And they wanted him to be uh, a kid again, like what he was when he first started out uh, back in the original, you know, whatever it was, Flash number 103 or something like that. I can't remember. But um, so that was what they what they wanted us to do. And um you know, we already had a pitch in mind of what we were going to do with the series when they came to us about that. And actually introducing Wally West uh, took the series in a direction we weren't expecting, but in a very positive way. You know, we, we recognized it as an opportunity to bring in a dynamic into the series. It wasn't just um, uh, going to be unique to Flash from what we'd seen so far in the New 52, but also to the New 52 as a whole, which is this sort of adult youth relationship, you know. And so, um, you know, the opportunity for Barry to affect Wally, but also for Wally to affect Barry um, and how they're going to impact each other was something that has really added a whole other level to the series. And some of the scenes I've had the most fun writing so far, including one that comes out and um, we're just doing the lettering on now. It'll be in Flash number 32. It's probably one of my favorite scenes I've ever written in comics. Wow. You know, I've really had a lot of fun with it. And it's a, it's a scene between Wally and Barry. Yeah, I think that sums it up well. Okay. Anybody have any questions? Some of Vincent things in the past that kind of led up to the point where you're at now may or may not be in continuity, and there's kind of like some gray areas because there's like Helen Scott and stuff like that, and we're kind of different people now. 
Yeah, um, it's, it is a little bit of a weird situation, but for the most part, uh, Green Lantern continuity pre-New 52 and Batman continuity pre-New pre 52, those are the two characters that remained intact when they switched over, um, whereas a lot of other characters like Flash sort of restarted. Green Lantern didn't do that. So really it's kind of a matter of if we ever have any question, we'll ask somebody, did that still happen? Did that not still happen? You know, um, like, I don't know, have you read Green Lantern Corps 31 yet? Okay. Well, there's a character who's reintroduced at the end of Green Lantern Corps 31 that's been missing for a while, and I won't spoil it for you. But uh, it's that, a great issue. It is a great issue. It's written by a really well drawn, actually, extremely well drawn. <laughs> no, um, but uh, it's uh, it, a, a character comes back who hasn't been around for a while, and it was it's a very pre New 52 sort of thing. You know, when Van and I were doing all this research before we took over the Green Lantern books, it was like, whatever happened to this character? Where, 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 you know? And so we came up with a way to, to answer that question. So it's, 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 um, you know, part of the new 52 and you don't need to know all this prior continuity, but when you read the story, if you've read the prior continuity, you can see that it's building on that as well. So it's trying to do both things. Yeah. I mean, there are certainly points where like, if you puzzle the logic of like, how did, you know, a certain event happened that like involves all the Green Lantern Corps, but then also involves all of these Earth heroes, but like they couldn't have existed. And I, you know, it's like you can get to a point where there's some logical friction and there are points where those things are figured out and there are answers to them. And there are points where, you're, you know, you're sort of politely told to stop asking questions. <laughs> um, but it, I mean, the, you know, for Green Lantern, it has such a great, and such a rich mythos that um, I don't know. I, I'm glad to have that to to draw upon. I also think too. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the same sorts of continuity conversations came up, whether it was the New Fifty Two or not. Right? Like continuities can get pretty complicated and contradictory just by their nature. So I don't know that that yeah, same no, conversation. That's absolutely true. That same conversation wouldn't have happened pre New Fifty Two. Like, dude, just don't ask. Just go do it. You know, whatever. So you're just writing dialogue or? Um, well, kind of collaborating with two other um, <laughs> artists and writers about um, creating our own like web comic. And we're really getting to where we're having this part like sitting down. We've got the story, but we're really sitting down trying to figure out, all right, what are we going to have the actual characters say now? Mm -hmm. So, and that's the part we're kind of struggling with. Um. I think something that helped me was, which I, this isn't helpful advice really, um, in a way. Way to give it a good sell. There. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so I, I was a journalist. Like that was my career. So I was a newspaper crime reporter um, before becoming a magazine editor. And so like my job was to listen to people and to pay attention to what they said and record what they, what they would say and parse it. And so I just, I, I mean, that was like all I did was listen to people talk. So I had a good a good ear for it. Um, but I, I think that in general, you can just pay more attention to listening to people talk um, while keeping in mind that 
you know, you you have to it like you can't replicate the way that people actually talk on a page because there's one, there's not space for it, but um, also it, things read differently than they do, um, you know, just listening to it. But um, the biggest thing that that I think was a, a more recent revelation to me is just very actively thinking about the the sentence structure, um, the just the word choices, everything um, to really differentiate characters. Um, think about what what the characters are, how they act, what their personality is, and use that to inform and actually sit down and say, okay, this person is like this. This is the way that they talk. This These are little things. I mean, you can even just a little thing by like, and this is something I use fairly frequently, not too frequently, I hope, but um, have characters not use um, contractions. Like they, you know, um, just... Like little little things, more you know, make somebody more formal, less formal. Somebody uses bigger words. Somebody doesn't use pronouns most of the time. I mean, all of those things are tools you can use. Uh, one thing I'll say that's really good is to read your dialogue out loud. You know, yeah. like I'll always read your dialogue out loud. Like I'll go and read the whole issue out loud to myself, and when it's bad, you'll be like, "Wow, that's bad." You know? <laughs> yeah. It's just when you read it, you're like, "Whoa, that's terrible." And you can tell. You know, you don't have to act it out or anything. You don't even need somebody to. So read it out loud too. Just read it out to yourself. Another thing too that you want to be careful of, like as much as I want to believe that the reason why somebody goes and picks up one of my comic books is because they love the way the word balloons look. Like, no, it's because they like the art, right? So you want to try to not overwrite and and uh, cover up the art, you know, because that's what's going to sell. Like when somebody clicks to your webcomic, they're going to see the art and that's going to draw them in because it's very visceral. It's very immediate. And then they'll read the words and hopefully the words will bring them back to click for the next installment, right? So there's this rule of 220, which is there's no hard and fast rules, but there's a general guideline. There's this rule of 220 where there should be no more than 220 words on a page. Now, this is maybe different for you because you're doing digital. I don't know what dimensions you're working at or whatever, but if you look at a standard comic book page, no matter how many panels there are, there's only 220 words on that page. So if it's one splash page, you could have 220 words, but if it's Four panels, you could have 55 words yeah. per panel or whatever. You know what I mean? You want to divide it up so that it, it you never have more than 220 on a page. And each, you know, if it divided, if there's four panels, divide it by four. And that's the maximum in that one panel or whatever, if I'm making sense. And so that is just sort of a rough guideline that you can use for yourself to try to not get too wordy. Because you can see a comic where the, where the dialogue is way too wordy for the art. And the tails have to loop around and do this and move all over the place and eye track is all off because everybody's bending over backwards trying not to cover up the face of the character who's speaking the balloon because the balloon's so big you know so um do that and also know what the dialogue is in rough terms before they draw and when they're drawing the art since you're collaborating with them and it sounds like you guys are all doing this as a group draw into the panel the balloons like this is where that balloon's going to go that's where that balloon's going to go and then build the art around that so you know the space is already there and you don't have to worry about coming back and crowding out uh, that other stuff. But in terms of making it sound natural and making it sound, the reading it out loud is the best way to do that. Um, and it depends on the kind of story you're doing. I don't know what kind of story you're doing. Game of Thrones, what sounds natural for Game of Thrones doesn't sound natural for, you know, uh, a modern day cop drama, right? So it depends on what the story is. But, you know, we come up with the vernacular of what it's going to be. He was talking about no contractions, Exo Man of War is a Visigoth from the from the 
fifth century. He doesn't use any contractions ever. Um, so, you know, just little things like that to try to make it sound authentic. Yep. Oh. Any other questions? Yeah. Have you ever had some crazy off the wall, out of nowhere idea that you wanted to put in the comic, but then you knew it could happen for 10, 20 issues, so you had to build up to that one event? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a very, I think we both are very long-term thinkers. You know, all the ideas that I have are ideas that are going to happen 10 issues from now and I'm running towards them, you know. So the idea is to try to have like a long-form story arc, which like Green Lantern as an example, like Hal's leadership and how he's going to grow into a leader. That's my long-form story arc. I'm dividing it up into shorter story arcs that revolve around certain things that he's interacting that reflect that longer story arc. So that first big story arcs when it comes to an end this August. So it will have been about 14 issues by the time it's over, but you don't really know that that's the long form story arc until you get to the end and you see it was all actually one big story because I've divided it up into chunks along the way. So I'm always looking towards something that's down the road. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that I've had an experience of hitting on an idea and, you know, wanting to use it immediately and then having to, to push it out. I, I think it's, it's mostly in just, well, and part of it is like you're always planning stuff out so far ahead with monthly comics that you know there it's never it's never like okay it's time to write a comic I have no idea what I'm going to do okay I'll do this and then oh wait that doesn't work you know it's always like you, you know by the time you get to scripting like you you know what the next three issues are going to be um, so it, it's really all about that you know setting setting a, a goal you know, for the story way ahead of you and then working towards it. Did I see his hand? Yeah. You said uh, you had discussions about this with the There's the editors, you know, and if, if the editor doesn't know, there's they're in a whole room. Like at Valiant, Dinesh Shamdasani, the CEO, is like a Valiant savant. Like... He wins the Valiant Trivia Contest every year. You know, like he knows everything. So like if I ask Warren a question. He didn't he, know CFS. That's true. He didn't. That's right. So if I ask Warren something and he doesn't know, he'll do ask Dinesh and Dinesh will know. Or at DC, if we ask our editors and they don't know, there's somebody in the building that knows because, you know, they've been there for varying degrees of decades and they've all worked on the books at certain times or whatever have you. So, um, yeah. Although I will say actually this. There's this character, Box. There's a Green Lantern that's shaped like a box. I saw him in, like, a splash page of, like, an old issue of, I think, Green Lantern Corps from, like, the Sinestro Corps War. He was, like, this box with a Green Lantern belt on, like, up in the corner. Yeah, it's in that like, prison break scene. Yeah, I was like, who is this dude? And nobody could tell me who this character was. They didn't know his name. I don't even know if it's a he, honestly. They didn't know a box. <laughs> they didn't know anything. And I was like, well, can I use this character, and can I create something out of this? And they were like, yeah, go for it, because... We don't know anything about it, but we don't. We almost think it was kind of like a sight gag, and so now Box is in the series, and we he's showing up in Red Lanterns. Has he been in Green Lantern Corps yet? I don't think he has. He's been in New Guardians. He just kind of pops up. It's like Waldo. It's just the, the box flying in the background with the Green Lantern logo on his chest. You know, I wrote but him into the. Nobody script. knows. I mean, he doesn't even have hands. You know what I mean? Like I don't know. To be fair, I wrote him into two different scripts, and he just didn't make it into the art. Yeah, I, I'm trying. Yeah, so. Wow. 
My uh, reaction to that is not what you all think his reaction was. I mean, I, they, they would never ask us to be a nah. part of a Green Lantern movie. Like, the, that's just the idea of that happening. It's so ridiculous on its face. Like, we write the comics and they do whatever they want to do, you know? This is kind yeah. of the same with the surrogates, too. Yeah, I mean, I was never asked to. That's even a good point. I was never asked to be a part of the surrogates, you know? Surrogates or Green Lantern? I haven't seen it, actually. <laughs> I bef- this is before getting asked to write Green Lantern Corps I might have live tweeted watching the Green Lantern movie and I might be glad that no one at Warner Brothers saw or cared that I that I had done that they don't know who you are yeah accurate <laughs> yeah I mean I haven't seen it um but I you know whatever I haven't you know, I mean, The Surrogates isn't exactly the best movie that's ever been made in the history of film either, you know. But I, fun. I think that uh, for me, having been a part of the process, you see the enormous amount of time and effort that goes into making something like that. Like they literally built when they made The Surrogates, they built like a mini city for four months and employed, you know, 300 odd people to feed and, and build set designs and do all this stuff, you know, and to me, like it adds a whole nother element to it, you know, beyond whether or not it's just an enjoyable story. Like, I mean, it's an industry that like (laughs) feeds people and puts roofs over people's heads. And I don't mean actors and actresses. I mean, you know, carpenters and electricians and, you know, cooks and whatever else. So to me, um, you know, I would never disparage that kind of stuff because you're disparaging the effort that all those people put into it and all I mean, a lot of people will focus on, you know, if you're talking about Green Lantern, they'll focus on Ryan Reynolds or whatever, you know. But there's like a million people behind Ryan Reynolds that were swinging a hammer that did their job really well, you know. So. But if you want to be a jerk, go for it. I'm just kidding, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding with you. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah, I certainly would. And I would definitely consult on it if they wanted me to you know um i did do that on the surrogates you know i consulted on the screenplay and and things like that i wasn't overly involved but i suspect there's a lot of things about exo man of war that i know that even valiant doesn't know not because i'm hiding them but just because you know the ideas are all there and i'm you know i'm not every time i have an idea i'm not calling somebody and telling them you know i had an idea you know so uh you know i would love to but i don't you know i have no right to be as part of the work for hire job, you know, like we're saying, they would never ask us to be involved in a, in a Green Lantern thing. And I don't expect that they'll contact us about the Flash TV show. You know, they're going to do their own thing and we're going to do our own thing. And that's just part of the deal, you know. You're talking about a movie adaptation? Yeah. There are some movie shots that are frame the movie right out of the Yeah, like Sin City or Watchmen or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just a movie is its own thing. And, like, the, there are so many different creative decisions that have to go into it. And, like, certainly, like, recreating a comic book just to recreate it is not a good idea, right? Because... Like, what makes a good comic doesn't necessarily make a good movie, but that's not to say that recreating a comic exactly onto the screen couldn't be good. It's just saying that you shouldn't do it just for that reason alone. Like, you would do that if 
if that served the purpose of making a good movie. And that's like the best movies are when you just have good people sitting down to make good movies, um, which I, I mean, sounds obvious in its way, but like slavish devotion to source material is probably more often than not going to lead you in a bad direction rather than lead you in a good direction. Yeah. To me, like there's two aspects of it. One in terms of an adaptation, the simplest metaphor I could use is if I wrote a song and you want to do a cover of my song, but I tell you, your song has to sound exactly like my song. Why do you want to do it? Right? You don't. You want to bring your own creativity and whatever you do in music. And my sort, my song is going to inspire that. And then you're going to do your own thing and make it something unique. And that's what a film is, right? When they made the surrogates film, I'd never want them to think that they had to do exactly what I did in the book. They liked my story. My story is already there. It's already in print. It already exists. They can't change that. So if they're inspired by my story to bring their own creativity to it, I don't want them to feel like I'm managing that or telling them they can't do that, do what they want to do. Um, the second element of that, which just slipped my mind, I don't remember what it was, but I swear it was going to be highly intelligent. Um, sure it was. Yeah. Oh, I know what it was. Percy Jackson and the Olympians. Okay. I adapt the, uh, the Percy Jackson novels into graphic novels. I took that job after the surrogates because I wanted to see the adaptation process being the adaptor instead of the adaptee, right? So when I went and saw the Percy Jackson Lightning Thief film, after I had written the adaptation of the graphic novel, they had changed so much of it. And to me, what I think they could have done, like, have you seen the Percy Jackson film? And you've read the novel. Okay. So to me, like, if they had this idea of the pearls and they had to go on the hunt for these pearls, and they, that's their basic you know, structure that they think they need to do in this film, that's fine. But then put one of the pearls at the at, at the St. Louis Arch with the chimera. Like, don't have them go to Memphis and fight a hydra, right? Because that doesn't happen in the novel. Like, take the pearl thing and try to fit it into this so that you're still at least having them meet the villains. I mean, they met Medusa still, but really that was the only conflict from the novel that carried over into the film, right? They could have gone to the to the St. Louis Arch and seen the chimera. They could have gone to the water park and there could have been a pearl there, you know what I mean? They could have done all those things still. They didn't have to change it, all of it, you know? And so I think there's... Would you rather they change all of it or just one small detail? Or one, the one that always sticks out in my head is the commander in the night of the three. Uh, they just completely changed who he is and what he does. Yeah. But they didn't change the whole universe. I think it's whatever's going to make the best story, you know? And don't change something just for the sake of changing it. Like, I, to me... I honestly don't think that a Hydra in Memphis is better than a Chimera in the St. Louis Arch because I've seen a Hydra in like every Greek mythology movie that's ever been made ever. I've never seen a Chimera. Like, let me see a Chimera on the screen. That'll be new. That'll be different, you know? So to me, it's, it's if you're going to change something or don't change something, a little or a lot, it doesn't matter. Just do it because it's good and it makes sense, you know? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, you haven't asked, asked a question yet. Each of you, really great continuity ideas that you thought of. Editorial said, no, never. We will never have it. Bad idea. Have we have one yet? I mean, we've come up with some pretty crazy stuff, and we've gone for almost all of it. <laughs> uh, we blew up Mo, or not Mogo. We blew up Oa. Yeah, so, we blew up Oa. Uh, we, yeah, we blew yeah. up Oa. We turned the lanterns into uh, basically the agents killer. of universal decay. Yeah. Um, what we're going to do with the Flash is going to be pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think it's just as long as it makes sense, it's not done for shock value, you know. Um, yeah, I, I mean, 
like you get notes from editors, sure. And um, I mean, maybe it's just that I've been an editor. So like, I understand that equation, but I really appreciate the fact that there's someone to help guide me and keep me in line and like steer me straight. And it's the vast majority by like a 10 to one margin of the notes that you get from editors are good because even if you disagree with it, it forces you to justify something that you probably didn't get on the page. Um, But I don't, it, it just, it doesn't, it hasn't really worked that way for us. And maybe, I mean, maybe we've been, lucky so far maybe we're just that good we talk through things so much before we ever even talk to an editor about it you know like we'll we'll punch holes in our own stories way before an editor ever even gets to it so there's stuff that we've probably come up with and punched our own holes in and never even got to the point where we talked to an editor about it because we realized it didn't work or whatever you know you or yeah okay For me, it's start to finish. I can't. I'm, there's guys out there who can, I'm sure. But for me, this week I'm going to write this, and next week I'm going to write that, and the next week I'm going to write that. Now, in around that, I'll be writing X Man of War this week, and I'll have to do lettering revisions on Green Lantern or whatever. But I can't write like three pages of this, and two pages of that, and four pages of that. Like I have to, I have to do it all. I. I'm kind of in a weird transition period because I, I was working full time in addition to doing comics um, up until like a couple of months ago. And so um, like the way that I did work was just squeeze in writing like in any free second. And so it was very, I, I don't know, it was just like I had to be super intense and churn out a bunch of work and then go to work and, and write some more. Um, so I I feel like and I'm I'm like super process obsessed, so I could go on a whole whole thing. But I've been like trying to figure out the exact right creative and and writing process, and I I haven't hit on it yet. So I'm going to spend the rest of the night thinking about it because of your question. <laughs> really, the answer. Did you? Oh. My question was Oh, okay. This guy has not got one either. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I feel like every single thing that I've ever had published comes out and I immediately hate it and I just look at it and see tons of faults in it. So I, there's no, like, there's no one secret thing or like no one realization. It's just constant analyzing, you know, finding the holes, looking at what I did wrong. I mean, one big realization I wrote the first uh, Pinocchio Vampire Slayer book and um, you know that was my first published book and I didn't understand that you could control pacing in a comic and it's a I'm trying to think it's like a hundred plus page book and everyone every reviewer referred to it as being 50 pages because it just reads like it reads super super fast and I realized like that was on me like I wrote it in a way that it reads in, incredibly fast because there's no there's no like without adding more pages you can add moments to make to control how the reader moves through the story um, but I mean literally everything I write I'm learning something from and seeing something that I did wrong for me uh 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's similar. You know, you, there's always things you don't like about the things you did. And you're always getting better. You're never going to have it all figured out, you know. If you ever meet the writer who tells you they have it all figured out, that's the one writer who does not have it all figured out because they're not even smart enough to know that they don't have it all figured out. Like, it's art. It's unanswerable. Like, it's not. There are no solutions. You know what I mean? It's, it's just a never-ending process of trying to improve and get better. For me, um, dialogue was something that I really had a hard time with in the beginning, and I still do, you know. Um, but also, I didn't, I didn't used to be much of a high-concept idea person, you know. Um, I was more of a quiet moment in a story kind of person as opposed to a high concept, you know, kind of deal. And that's something that working on monthly comics that I feel like I've been able to improve on is being able to come up with large concepts that are grand in scale, but also go across multiple books and, and those kinds of things. So it's kind of what the writing Green Lantern is, you know, as the lead title, you're trying to come up with ideas that will filter into the other books and things. And so that's one area that I feel like I've improved in. And your question may need to be the last one. Kind of, it's almost three o'clock. Uh, give me an example. I don't know if I understand well, the question. I mean, this, basically, speaking, you know, Superman's still a guy who flies around, mm -hmm. but uh, some of the deeper things, like you know, Papa O blowing up, you know, maybe that's something from previous. Yeah, I think it would be. I think it would be. Um, well, no, I mean, O blowing up wasn't because we couldn't hold on to it. it. We we were writing a story, and when I was plotting out Lights Out, which was kind of my pitch to get Green Lantern, knowing who the character was, Relic, and what he was going to be doing and what he was all about when i got to this point in the story where they were going to blow up the, the battery on oa in my head i said logically i think that would probably do a lot of damage to the planet because we've already seen in previous continuity that the energy from the power batteries is sort of in these catacombs that go under the planet you know and so i was like what if Oa blew up you know what would happen then oh they would go to mogo and i was like oh that is an idea they go to mogo and now they're mobile and they can move around. Why aren't they on mogul already? And you just kind of follow the story and see where it takes you as opposed to, um, you know, trying to say, all right, I want to blow up Oa. How am I going to do it? You know, like I would never write that story, right? Yeah. DC man didn't set out, okay, even though we're rebooting this on new, there's still some things we want to kind of keep in your... I would say, I mean, not, not to me because I wasn't there at the birth of the new 52, but Valiant as an example. I had to do that at Valiant, right? I launched Exo Man War for Valiant. They came to us and they said, the high concept stays the same. He's still a fifth century Visigoth who gets a sentient suit of armor and comes back to the modern day. After that, do what you want. And I think that that's the idea. Like, like that's the toy, right? Like, if you go buy the toy, the toy is the guy in the sentient suit of, of armor who is a barbarian, right? That's the toy. So don't break the toy. Everything else you can change, but the toy can stay the same. Superman's still a guy in a cape who flies around. But what do you change around that? Well, he's not the he's not the Daily Planet anymore. Now he's a blogger or whatever. You know those kinds of things. I think with um, with continuity, and it seems like this is the approach from the editors, and it's certainly the way that that I look at it. It's not it's not something that you're like living in constant fear of, or that you're you know constantly going back and and like trying to make stuff happen out of it. It's more just something that, like, it's there when you need it, and you, you know, you check it just to make sure that you aren't doing something that runs completely counter, that, like, is going to run afoul of stuff or is going to, you know, 
mess with the way that readers consume the work, but you also like it doesn't it doesn't drive the story. All right, guys. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, man. Thank, Thank you, you, everybody, for coming. Thanks. I hope you had fun. Is there anything you want to plug or promote before we? Uh, just Flash, Green Lantern, and Green Lantern Corps, I guess, you know? Yeah. Big storylines um, going on right now. We're uh, in the 300 something. Um, Rob's booth. at 321, Van's at 323. Stop by, check them out, pick up some books. Yep. Thanks, guys. Thank you. That was fun. Yeah.